1: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we begin to find out if we still have a constitution. Because the constitution in the third clause of the 14th Amendment says... No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or hold any office, civil or military, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. It does not say that that person has to be convicted of insurrection or rebellion, it does not say that that person has to be disqualified from the ballot by a judge or a legislature or a jury or a plebiscite. It does not say that the president is not an officer of the United States or that a president is otherwise exempt. It does not say that the disqualification of an insurrectionist from being president is any different than is the disqualification of a foreign citizen from being president, nor any different than is the disqualification of a 14-year-old from being president, that all of them are self-executing. It does not say that this clause of the Constitution may only be enforced if all the voters agree. It does not say that this clause of the Constitution can only be enforced after somebody ineligible has been elected. It does not say that this clause of the Constitution can only be enforced if the insurrectionists' cult and gangs and militias and stochastic terrorists promise not to threaten civil war. It does not say that this clause of the Constitution can only be enforced if a majority of the justices of the Supreme Court cannot make up a bullshit excuse for not enforcing it. It does say that this clause of the Constitution can be overridden If Congress removes the disqualification of a given individual by a vote of two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate, period. Today, we have just the start, the oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson, which might as well be called Trump v. the Constitution, because the Constitution is clear. And if there were any remaining doubts that this is correct, they were erased on Tuesday of this week when some of Trump's loudest, horriest clods in Congress announced a bill to do exactly what the third clause of the 14th Amendment says to do when you don't like what it does, which is to cure the infraction, which is to, quote, remove the disability, unquote, by enacting a bill to declare that the individual, in effect, did not engage in insurrection and is eligible. And if that didn't erase any remaining doubts, Then they had been erased when last month a legal columnist brought up the fact that on July 22nd, 2014, the dead judge that the Republicans and the conservatives and all the anti-democracy forces of this nation most revere, that he wrote to two constitutional scholars to confirm that they were wrong, that the president of the United States is too an officer of the United States, and that, yes, that's what he wrote in an opinion concurring with a ruling of his Supreme Court. And then, yes, their life work devoted to proving that the president is not an officer was an utter waste. And that not only is the president an officer of the United States, so is the vice president. So is the speaker of the House. So is the president pro tempore of the Senate. The man who wrote the letter was named Antonin Scalia. And if that didn't erase any remaining doubts, then they had been erased when 25 historians wrote an amicus brief to the Supreme Court about today's case, reviewing the real-time debate in the Senate about the third clause of the 14th Amendment. The good old, what were the framers thinking when they did this context that Supreme Court justices hold so very dear, a debate in which a Maryland senator opposed to the amendment, asked a Maine senator supporting the amendment why the amendment omitted the president. And the Maine senator said it didn't omit the president. The president was covered by the phrase any office, civil or military under the United States. And the Maryland senator then said, oops, my bad, and never mentioned the issue again. And if that didn't erase any remaining doubts, then they had been erased one on January 2nd of this year one of defendant J Trump's lawyers not only said constitutional disqualifications were irrelevant and if the people wanted to elect somebody who was constitutionally ineligible to serve they could quote whether they're guilty of insurrection or not which is one a damn fool thing to say and two pretty close to a confession there is no case here this is not Trump v Anderson it's bullshit v Anderson it's nothing v. Anderson. And I know the words bullshit and nothing are already synonyms for Trump, but they have never been more apt than they are today as oral arguments begin. And saying that, I fully expect that at least five of the justices will try to find some way to pretend that Trump's argument is not utter unconstitutional nonsense, the way their predecessors pretended that corporations are people or separate but equal was dandy or that Dred Scott would always be a slave or that the Second Amendment protects gun ownership even though neither the word own nor any synonym for it appears in the Second Amendment. Which is a damn shame because I like Supreme Courts that decide vital existential constitutional issues based on, you know, the Constitution. Also, I don't know what we do if we don't happen to have one of those Supreme Courts at the moment. I mean, I don't know what we do about a Supreme Court that is overruling the Constitution out of fear. Fear of criticism, fear of politics, fear of retribution, fear of strife, fear of Trump. I mean, there is the argument that John Roberts' court had damn well better decide for Anderson and against Trump because, hell, the Trump people are already ignoring the Supreme Court rulings and insisting that John Roberts and his crew can be nullified. And if Roberts and Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett are going to make a decision based on everything except the Constitution, they probably should put one forward favoring the other side in the political civil war of 2024, us, because the other side is already ready to put the court out of business and, and I don't know, arrest the justices. Hi, Greg Abbott. So it'd probably help these justices if they did not rule in such a way that we would be ready to put the court out of business and, uh, I don't know, arrest the justices. I mean, you're going to piss somebody off. And if that's what you're worried about, piss off the side that is already pissed at you. Nothing worse than pissing off one side and then adroitly pissing off the other as well. I think Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that in Schenck right before that part about not shouting fire in a crowded theater. But seriously, folks, a lot of us invoked the 14th Amendment on the night of January 6th, 2024, about Trump, about Marjorie Taylor Greene, about Josh Hawley, about a lot of others. But whether this Supreme Court agrees with what is written in that 14th Amendment, agrees with two men in particular, or commits institutional suicide by overruling the Constitution, those two men in particular will be remembered for mainstreaming the argument that the 14th Amendment is clear as a bell. One of the men is Professor William Baud of the University of Chicago, and the Federalist Society. The other is Professor Michael Paulson of the University of St. Thomas, Minnesota and the Federalist Society. And they were the two guys who last August revealed the conclusions of their long constitutional scholarship about the 14th Amendment to the New York Times, summarized by Professor Bode when he said, quote, Donald Trump cannot be president, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office unless two-thirds of Congress decides to grant him amnesty for his conduct on January 6th. Same Professor Will Bode, who five months earlier had given the Antonin Scalia Law Lecture at Harvard with Scalia's widow in the audience. While such esteemed American lawyers and figures of jurisprudence as Trump's parking lot lawyer and Trump's I never bother to read what I'm signing lawyer have jumped to the forefront of the imaginary debate over the imaginary excuses that the 14th Amendment has not already disqualified Trump and his only recourse is to the House and Senate and getting a two thirds vote in his favor. Oh, right, The Republicans couldn't even get a one vote vote in their favor Tuesday. Professor Bode has not been everywhere. But he has been writing. He and Professor Paulson have written eight follow-up columns at the website Reason. And I suppose as a stalwart of the Federalist Society, he is the last person I ever expected to be quoting here. And I'm just as certain that as a stalwart of the F.U. Federalist Society, I'm the last person he ever expected to be quoting him. And for all I know, he will sue me when I do. But God damn it, he's right. And God damn it, he's also a great writer i encourage you to read all the essays they are not long and he's tweeted links the most recent he and professor paulson put out at 1 30 yesterday afternoon and it is titled the objection that it is too soon to adjudicate trump's qualifications in other words why throw him off the primary ballot in a state or even the actual election ballot now i mean the amendment says he can't serve Not that you can't vote for him, right? Deal with it later. No. To quote Professors Bode and Paulson, according to the Colorado Supreme Court, the authoritative expositor of Colorado law, Colorado's legislature has provided for the exclusion from the presidential primary ballot of those who are not eligible to serve as president. In other words, Section 3 makes clear that Trump cannot hold the office of president, and state law provides that those who cannot hold the office of president should not be on the ballot as presidential candidates. To continue quoting them again, with respect, what seems to have given this argument legs, in our view, is not so much its dubious legal merits as its supposed political expediency. The argument is seen to offer the court an off-ramp, that would allow it to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court ruling in favor of Trump, but without accepting any of his various unacceptable arguments about Section 3. Somehow, this is thought to be a politically preferable alternative to a straightforward affirmance or reversal on the merits. Our specialty is law, not politics. But the political merits of this approach are hard for us to understand. If the court rules that it is too soon to adjudicate Trump's qualifications for the office he seeks, when will it be time? In November, when most presidential election votes are cast? In December, when the electors meet? In January, when the electoral votes are counted in joint session? On Inauguration Day? Each of these options seems riskier and riskier. Far from a convenient off-ramp or leisurely rest stop, it looks to us like a formula for a chain reaction massive multi-car pile-up. It would seem safer to us to keep one's eyes on the road, unquote. Right? I could quote most of that essay and the seven others in full. As I said, go read them but let me quote briefly from two of the others. One about the idea that clearly to be disqualified for insurrection, you have to be charged with insurrection and convicted of insurrection. Not so fast, Roger B. Tawny breath. Quote, the text of section three nowhere contains or references any requirement of criminal law conviction as a prerequisite to or condition of Section 3's operation. To read such a requirement into Section 3 is to make up something that is not there. Rather, as we put it in our original article, Section 3's disqualification where triggered just is. It parallels the Constitution's other qualifications for office, such as age residency, and citizenship, none of which, of course, requires a criminal trial. Was I right about his writing, too? And lastly, there is the fear factor, the essay in which Baud quotes another constitutional expert from Washington University in St. Louis, who gets off a pretty good joke at the end, this essay was titled, The Objection That Enforcing Section 3 Would Be Too, Quote, Dangerous. It begins, quote, Of all the objections that have been offered to our interpretation of Section 3, one stands out as far and away the most craven and insidious. It is the argument that, regardless of what the Constitution says and how it is correctly understood, we should not enforce Section 3's exclusion of insurrectionists from future office because doing so... "...might provoke substantial political resistance and even violence by their supporters. To comply with the Constitution in this respect, therefore, it is said, is simply too dangerous." In short, it might tend to produce further, greater acts of insurrectionary violence or rebellion directed against our constitutional order. We should decline to enforce the Constitution's exclusion of insurrectionists from office because that might only make matters worse. Or, as Professor Daniel Epps put it in jest... The Supreme Court shouldn't rule that Trump is ineligible for the presidency for engaging in insurrection because if they do, Trump will definitely stage an insurrection. Hot damn! And that, justices of the Supreme Court, is the case for the defense in Trump v. Anderson. I hope to God You listen to it. Also of interest here, impeaching Secretary Mayorkas didn't work. It humiliated every Republican. It imperiled yet another Speaker of the House. So the Republican plan B is... Do it all over again next Tuesday! And... She's running for Secretary of State in Missouri, and she's had it with all these book banners. She has a better idea than book banning. Book burning. That's next, this is Countdown. I am the
0: ferryman. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals.
0: With Keith Olbermann,
3: my crazy friend. Postscripts oh, to the news. Some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Capitol Hill, Washington. No, D.C. <laughs> hand it to the Republicans. They will never be kept up at night nor shackled by the complications of regret or doubt from having learned from their mistakes. Mayorkas impeachment fails because the speaker assumes the Democrat with the surgery scheduled cannot possibly make it back to the floor. So he knows he can screw the Democrats and especially the congressman having surgery. So the congressman shows up and screws little Johnson into the ground. But I'm Moses. So naturally, per documents sent by Democratic House leadership to its members yesterday, they will be voting again on impeaching Mayorkas at 6.30 next Tuesday. If this were Trump, there'd be 429 lawsuits by now claiming double jeopardy or presidential immobility or or something. So the Republican schedule is Tuesday, 6.30, impeach the secretary, and Tuesday, 6.45, when that fails, flee and try to destroy all the evidence. you, Nancy Faust. By the way, the reaction to the failed impeachment from the new anchor boy of the far right, Carl Higbee of Newsmax, they must primary Republican Ken Buck of Colorado, who voted against impeaching Mayorkas. Ken Buck is retiring from the House of Representatives. He's not running for reelection. That'll show him. Once again, democracy survives not so much by our efforts to preserve it, but by the stupidity of those trying to destroy it, most of whom, like this idiot Higby, are nitwits. (laughs) Speaking of Dateline, Missouri, please meet Valentina Gomez-Noriega, She is running for the Republican nomination for secretary of state in Missouri. And like you and I, she is appalled by all this banning of books. In a video she has made and posted to social media, Valentina Gomez Noriega is shown not with an automatic weapon of some kind. That is so 2023. But with what looks like a jerry-rigged flamethrower because... Her platform is no more banning of books. We're going to burning of books.
2: This is what I will do to the growing books when I become secretary of state.
1: Let's go. Ah, mm, Welcome to the main event. Applying pressure, but I promise I ain't making that.
2: These books from Missouri Public Library. When I'm in office, they will burn.
3: Now, as horrifying as this asshole's idea is, and how she should have her life ruined for even giving public voice to it, I am comforted by one inevitable reality of which Ms. Valentina Gomez Noriega is clearly unaware. Now, after some minor searching, I could not find out where Ms. Gomez Noriega was born, but she says her parents are immigrants. And I've only been to Kansas City and St. Louis, but my hunch is that her three opponents in the Republican primary for Secretary of State might just hear her talk and mention that she don't sound like she's from Chesterfield, Missouri. Because the modern Republicans may not oppose book-burning or Missouri Nazis or Missouri racism. But we can count on this. They do oppose people named Gomez Noriega. On countdown, I swear this is true. One constant listener was nice enough to send me a photo from what he termed a baseball event, and there was Rudy Giuliani getting applause and handshakes and back claps instead of, you know, rotten tomatoes and paper towels with which to wipe off his extra hair coloring. So this seems like a good time to recall my baseball event with Rudy Giuliani, which was the first day I realized he was not of this earth and we are approaching the 30th anniversary of that day so the rest of you who have complaints about giuliani you get in line behind me first time for the daily roundup of the other miscreants morons and dunning kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world the bronze worse dementia j trump What was he doing at 1.07 a.m. yesterday morning? What any normal, sane, almost octogenarian would be doing, spit-posting on social media about the TV ratings for the Grammy Awards. Another year of anemic Grammy ratings, only 16.9 million viewers. I suppose this is still the... Time Magazine Person of the Year award going to Taylor Swift stuff. Plus, maybe it's him signaling to the cult that he's buying into the right wing Swift conspiracies about. I've lost track. Anyway, her picture was in this thing, too. Only 16.9 million viewers. Last month, when Trump went on Fox, he got 4.4 million viewers. That's about a quarter of the Grammy audience. Last May, Trump got 3.3 million viewers on CNN. Last March, three million on Fox. In September, three million on Meet the Press. And that was compared to five million who were not watching him on This Week and Face the Nation. So his last four full-length solo TV appearances have earned Trump a total audience for four shows of 13,760,000 viewers compared to 900 thousand for the Grammys. So if the Grammy ratings are anemic, Trump's ratings are him with a bunch of leeches stuck to his face. Which coincidentally is how I think of him. The runner-up were, sir, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, the one after Cameron and May and Johnson and Liz Truss. So Mr. Sunak is the Conservative Party's fifth string Prime Minister. Sixth string, if you count the lettuce. Sunak showed why he actually lost the leadership contest in his party to Liz Truss, the mother of a trans girl murdered by two teenagers infected with Trumpism, was in the visitor's gallery for Prime Minister's question time in Parliament yesterday, and Sunak paid tribute to her, and then, like 90 seconds later, he made a joke about transgender women as an insult against the leader of the opposition. Honest to God, 90 seconds later, first he pays tribute to this poor woman, whose transgendered daughter was murdered, and then he makes a joke about transgendered women. So, who's the Conservative Party's seventh-string prime minister? Anybody seen that head of lettuce? But our winners, Tucker Carlson and Juanita Broderick. That's Tucker Carlson, who got community noted by the Kremlin. Under his post promoting his flatulent, lap-sitting visit with the dictator, the Kremlin has disputed Carlson's claim that no other Westerner has bothered to interview Putin. The Kremlin spokesman added, there's no way he could know this. Like that ever stopped Tucker Carlson before. When the Kremlin is more credible than you are, Tucker, you've just turned the rest of your life into a punchline. By the way, a member of the European Parliament is talking about introducing a response to Carlson's serving as Putin's useful idiot by proposing a travel ban against Carlson in EU countries. Also, uh, that phrase useful idiot, that's how we used to think of Tucker at MSNBC, only without the useful part. And Juanita Broderick, remember her? She's the woman who you thought used up all her lies in the 20th century, when she changed her story about Bill Clinton five different times and eventually went to one in which Clinton called her to apologize, which is the single most unbelievable thing anybody's ever said about Bill. Now Juanita has become one of the many right wing nut jobs to fall for something on what used to be Twitter, which Elon Musk renamed X, which he should now rename Sucks. She and thousands of others among the brain damaged on Sucks, took a doctored screenshot in which all the lettering might be in Ukrainian Cyrillic, or might be in Russian Cyrillic, it's hard to tell. And it has a picture of Zelensky on it, and she declared it was a Ukrainian government assassination list directed against Tucker Carlson, because there's a picture of him on it too. Quoting Juanita, this POS dictator Zelensky has put Tucker Carlson on a kill list for interviewing Putin. Biden has helped him with your tax dollars. First of all, it turns out that the image was from an internet database. And the worst thing it actually says about Carlson in the original is that he's a quote, blogger. Like Tucker Carlson could write anything, a blogger. But secondly, even if you think Ukraine is is wrong and Putin is right, how stupid do you have to be to think that somewhere online the president of a country with elections and a representative government and a free media keeps a kill list where people could find it and screenshot it. Well, you'd have to be as stupid as Juanita Broderick, which is pretty effing stupid. Juanita, also, how stupid would you have to be to think Tucker Carlson is worth the price of a bullet? Broderick, two days! Worst person! And no
0: I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? Yes.
1: I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Just ahead, you may think Rudy Giuliani only went nuts after Biden blew him out of the water during the primary debates in 2007 when he said that Rudy was just a noun, a verb and 9-11. You may think it only happened when that one last Viagra too many redirected Rudy's blood from his tiny mind to his tiny moving on. In fact, it happened at least 30 years ago, and I'm a witness, as I'll explain next in Things I Promised Not To Tell, the day I found out Rudy Giuliani was nuts. First time for another dog in need, you can help every dog has its day. Today, in fact, it's a little help for somebody who helps out a lot of dogs in need. My friend Alana Rizzo of MLB Network. She runs Guidry's Guardian, which offers support to anybody fostering or adopting a rescue. They also look out for dogs whose original helpers have needed further help themselves. Alana and her group stepped in to help Kit Kat, Kit Kat is a German shepherd from San Bernardino who we had helped out on Twitter. Guidry's Guardian wants to provide support for every dog in need, assisting with adoption fees, medical, food supplies, 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 rehab, even training. If you can make a donation to them, great. The info is in the pinned tweet at my dog account, at TomJumboGrumbo. But even just retweeting that tweet can help them too. Guidry's Guardian thanks you, and I Thank you. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. I hear this question about Rudy Giuliani a lot. When did his life go so horribly, horribly wrong? Here was America's mayor, the rock, in the hours of crisis after 9 11. What is he now? After literally years of trying to sell the Hunter Biden laptop story, who does the Hunter Biden laptop story bite? Him, four seasons gardening, the mascara running down his face, gaseous emissions at phony election hearings, the Sasha Baron Cohen film. I mean, even back then, I thought it was nuts that people actually thought Rudy Giuliani was the front runner for the 2008 Republican presidential nomination, while well, he was widely held to be just that in 2006 and 2007, and by the time. It happened. He was already on his way to spending millions of dollars to finish last. But it was the final nail in the coffin in which he still lives. At a Democratic debate in 2007, October 30th, before the field shook out everybody but Obama and Hillary, one of the other candidates was excoriating the Republicans and their exploitation of terrorism and the Al-Qaeda attacks. And that other candidate said of Giuliani, quote, There's only three things he mentions in a sentence, a noun, a verb, and 9-11. The candidate was Joe Biden. The phrase, a noun, a verb, and 9-11 ended Rudy Giuliani's career, and Giuliani's dislike of Joe Biden, many decades old, turned to hatred at that exact moment, which is why we got to where we got to in 2020. That was also the exact moment at which any hopes Julie had of being elected anything, anywhere, ever again, vanished. But it was clear to me as far back as September 2001 that sadly what we saw at that time was a bad man having a few good days. Before that month was out, Giuliani's response to the attack on democracy was to himself attack democracy, to propose that the November election to choose his successor to be mayor of New York should be postponed, or that at least he should stay on for a few months as co-mayor, because he was irreplaceable. There had always been more subtle hints Giuliani was never a good man, just a slightly smarter one, a more devious one. The venomous Rudy, the scheming Rudy, the amoral Rudy, the Rudy with a bad song in his heart, leaked out from time to time and often inside the world of sports, which is where I met him. You will remember Rudy Giuliani was a professional New York Yankees fan. He always went to the games for free, mind you, dugout seats for himself, his wife, His other wife, his next wife, the kids, the friends. When I still had friends in Yankee Stadium, they estimated Rudy used to cost them thousands of dollars every time he showed up. He always left via the clubhouse. He always wore a Yankees cap. He billed himself as, quote, the number one Yankee fan. And then when the Boston Red Sox were playing in the 2007 World Series, when he was campaigning for president in New Hampshire, Rudy Giuliani suddenly announced he was rooting for the Red Sox. This is like being a Trump fan and announcing you are rooting for democracy. But I went back with Rudy Giuliani even longer than that. In 1995 or 1996, I was asked by the deputy mayor of New York City, Fran Reiter, and the staff of the Baseball Hall of Fame to travel from ESPN in Connecticut, literally to the steps of New York City Hall, to MC an event for what must have been 35 members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, maybe the largest group of them ever assembled in one place in one moment in time. The deputy mayor approached me And the mayor, a few steps behind her on that gorgeous spring day, as she began to introduce us, she realized he had begun to wander off. Rudy? Rudy! She bellowed. He wandered back. Rudy, this is Keith Olbermann from ESPN. He's going to be the MC. You will have to introduce him after you speak. The mayor seemed to be having trouble focusing on me or anything else. I thought of the old joke, just just keep your eyes on the Olbermann in the middle. He extended a hand, missed mine, then recalibrated. As we shook hands, he grunted. The deputy mayor now roared at him. Rudy, you have to introduce him. His name is Keith Ulberman from ESPN. He's the MC." Giuliani turned and looked at her like he'd never seen her before. He grunted again. Deputy Mayor Writer now screamed at Rudy Giuliani. Repeat it to me! He looked at me, then he looked back at her, and he said, His name is Keith Alderman from ESPN. He's the MC." With annoyance, writers said, Thank you! And Giuliani smiled and wandered off again. And I half-seriously thought, Did I just meet a body double? Is he a replicant? Is he a well-built robot? This can't be the actual mayor. Well, it was. I took my seat in the front row of the stage that had been built atop the City Hall steps as the crowd gathered, and it was a good one, maybe three or four hundred people. The president of the Hall of Fame spoke first. The mayor sat next to me. Giuliani leaned in at one point and whispered to me, Your name is Keith Olverman from ESPN. You're the MC. I talk, I introduce you. I said something encouraging. And he smiled broadly like a child who was about to get some candy. The president of the baseball Hall of Fame wrapped up, introduced Giuliani, who bounced up to the stage and thanked him and got his name wrong. He then launched into a speech, taking credit for the great weather and the terrific early season performance of the New York Yankees and the New York Mets and the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, who had moved out of New York in 1957. But if he had been mayor, then they wouldn't have moved out and New York would have the four teams it deserves. And look at all these great players. Let me now turn it over to a good friend of mine and a great baseball man. And he looked at me and he forgot everything. Silence. Titters of laughter from the crowd. And finally, he looked the other way behind him, where the deputy mayor had her head in her hands. Rudy Giuliani, into a microphone that picked up everything he said, said loudly, What's his name? Who is he? And now the titters of laughter in the crowd turned to a little bit louder laughter, and some of the Hall of Fame players seated behind me gave me pats of consolation on my shoulder. Fran Ryder screamed, Keith Olbermann from ESPN, the MC. You repeated it to me. Giuliani turned back to the crowd as if there had been no way they could have heard or seen any of this. And he said, so let me turn it over to a good friend of mine and a great baseball man, Keith Olbermann, our NC from ESPN. I just sat there. More laughs, more consolations from the players behind me. I can still hear the laugh of the late Detroit Tigers great Al Kaline rising above the others. Al later came over to commiserate. As I thought, should I get there and say, thank you, Mayor Dinkins? Or better yet, thank you, Mayor LaGuardia? I then concluded, no, I can't do that. I'm representing ESPN. I'm representing the Baseball Hall of Fame. As I thought that, he said it again. So now I got up and I told the crowd, sorry, I wasn't sure he meant me. So if you are saying to yourself, What on earth happened to Rudy Giuliani with that brown schvitz pouring down his face? I am saying to you, he has been this crazy for at least 30 years. You were just lucky enough to have not previously noticed. It is all true, or my name ain't Keith Obelman, our NC from (laughs) ESPN. Done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Send the podcast to somebody who would like it. All right, that's asking a lot. Send it to somebody who will subscribe to it. Liking it is optional. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music, including our brand new Trump Trials theme, 91 Trombones. Mr. Ray was on the guitars, bass, and drums, and Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. It was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some of the Beethoven compositions, were arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Tony Kornheiser, everything else was pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 272nd day until the 2024 U.S. presidential election and the 1,129th day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Use the 14th Amendment, Supreme Court justices, the Insurrection Act, the justice system, the mental health system, to stop him from doing it again while... We still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. <music> countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio.